welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. All right. Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome everyone to this edition of the TSRA podcast series. Today, we have two excellent faculty with us to discuss uh, the care of hypoplastic left heart syndrome. From the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, we have Dr. Mahesh Sharma. He's an associate professor of surgery and section chief of congenital heart surgery at the Heart Center there. And from the University of Michigan, we have Dr. Richard Oye, professor of surgery and section chief of uh, pediatric cardiovascular surgery at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. Thank you both for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Good morning. So I'd like to start off with a scenario of a patient here. Uh, We have a 2.8 kilogram male infant born at 37 weeks gestation that's transferred into your center after experiencing episodes of hypoxia and hemodynamic compromise approximately 30 hours after delivery. He was started on prostaglandins at that time and intubated prior to transfer. Echocardiography upon arrival to your center shows a diagnosis of HLHS uh, with aortic atresia and mitral atresia subtype. He has mild right ventricular dysfunction with mild tricuspid regurgitation. His initial lactate was 5, uh, and after starting a low-dose milrinone drip, that trended down to 2 after several hours of resuscitation. There are no other known congenital or genetic conditions. Dr. Oye, I'd like to start with you. If you could discuss how you would assess this patient, his risk for uh, undergoing the stage one procedure, and how you would undergo that stage one procedure would be appreciated. Yeah, thanks, Garrett. I think what we would do on that sort of a patient is uh, a standard uh, stage one Norwood palliation uh, and hopefully get them down on the stage pathway. Um, when we look at these kids, uh, we look at their risk factors, obviously, and we think about things like uh, RV dysfunction, his is mild, we think about tricuspid regurgitation, um, other uh, non-cardiac anomalies, genetic anomalies, and obviously one of the bigger ones would be obstructed pulmonary venous return. Um, and then other things like his birth weight, his gestational age would also be factored in. And uh, at our center, um, he's sort of a mildly higher risk kid, I think, but uh, we would certainly head down a standard surgical pathway. Uh, Very good. And Dr. Sharma, uh, I'm wondering if we had a few other uh, things added on to this scenario. Let's say his uh, RV dysfunction was at least moderate. He had maybe moderate severe tricuspid regurgitation or some other risk factors. Uh, What other strategies might you guys think about using in a patient like this? Well, thanks for the question, Garrett. Uh, I think uh, many of the risk factors that were outlined uh, before, including prematurity, um, really low birth weight, we would look at uh, things. Uh, really, the inflection point for us is somewhere below 2.5 kilograms. You know, other anatomic factors such as restriction of the atrial septum, or uh, if there was a history of an intact septum in utero or postnatally. And then more, more appropriately in this scenario, uh, things that uh, regarding cardiovascular collapse and the sequelae of that, including uh, evidence of multi-system organ failure, as well as you know the potential risk for uh, intracranial hemorrhage as a result of uh, resuscitation, et cetera. So I think this, this scenario creates a real uh, nice pathway or an algorithm 
um, and where the hybrid approach, which includes bilateral PA banding and uh, ductal stenting in, in the most comprehensive form versus using, using uh, prostaglandin, uh, it really gives you a bridge to a decision in a patient like this after cardiac uh, arrest or shock when you have ventricular dysfunction and, and moderate plus uh, tricuspid regurgitation that you can actually proceed along the pathway for hybrid onto comprehensive stage two, or in fact, go down a rapid stage one Norwood pathway if there was recovery of function. And then the third sort of avenue is that patients who don't get better uh, can remain palliated uh, as such and then go on to being listed for orthotopic heart transplant. Very good, thank you. I wanted to ask, you know, the, the development of the hybrid procedure for these high-risk patients is um, somewhat new over the last 10 years. I think it's been increasing in popularity, but could you tell us a little bit of the background of why this procedure was developed? I mean, what, what were the differences in outcomes between the, these low and these high-risk patients beforehand? Well, if you think about the NORD procedure, uh, there are obviously varying survivals by center. Um, if you consider the single ventricle reconstruction trial, uh, which enrolled about 550 newborns uh, planning on undergoing a NORD procedure. Uh, these were from 15 of the bigger centers in North America and survival for the Norwood procedure uh, in that trial varied from about 10, or actually mortality, sorry, varied from about 10% uh, to 39%. So there was a wide variety of outcomes. And I think part of the driving force was uh, for some centers to try to come up with an alternative pathway, uh, which would lead to better survivals. I think there are other potential benefits, uh, mostly avoiding a uh, large open heart surgery in the neonatal period uh, with respect to perhaps better neurodevelopmental outcomes in particular. So I think there are a number of things that, that drove uh, the concept of the hybrid procedure. Dr. Sharma, did you have anything to add to that? Or? I, I think it, it does vary, and this is some, something that we'll uh, comment on in the wrap-up, is that center variability as well as patient factors are hugely uh, disparate around the world, not let alone the country. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think that centers who uh, don't perform high-volume uh, stage one conventional surgery for example, in places like Japan and some centers in Europe where they're doing maybe one or two Norwoods a year, uh, conversion to a lower risk surgical strategy at stage one has benefited them. Um, and in fact, you know, the, the survival rates are upwards of 95 to 97% in some of those centers versus if they were routinely doing a Norwood, it's very unlikely they would achieve that success at the stage one. Excellent. And what we're talking about, um, kind of outcomes after the stage one, Dr. Sharma, could you comment on the difference in kind of interstage management between somebody who's undergone a hybrid and somebody who's undergone a conventional Norwood for their stage one palliation? Sure, Garrett. I think that obviously the interstage and a hybrid procedure is uh, at times similar, but very different based on the complication profile. Uh, as many people have probably pointed out, there are definitely more unplanned reinterventions 
for the hybrid procedure upwards of 30% versus about 10% for conventional stage one Norwood. And those specifically have to do with uh, PDA, the patent ductus stent, instant stenosis rate, as well as the concept of retrograde arch obstruction. That is, uh, the area between the ductal stent and the transverse aortic arch gets progressively narrowed. Uh, and if that is not surveillanced, obviously that will lead to cerebral and coronary ischemia, um, which could lead to sudden death or progressive ventricular dysfunction. So the retrograde aortic arch obstruction phenomenon needs to be uh, followed very, very closely. And then issues such as recoarctation of the aorta distal to the stent. And then uh, the, lastly, the, the restriction of a, at the atrial septal level. Um, oftentimes, the atrial septum is left alone as part of the hybrid approach. Uh, other times, it's uh, ballooned. And other times it's ballooned and stented. And so depending on the, the degree of thickness of the atrial septum and how it's managed, they have recurrent uh, restriction at that level. So those are some of the interstage uh, mode, some of the interstage phenomenon that you see in the hybrid approach. And uh, additionally, things such as feeding um, and growth come into play uh, as a result of uh, and a sort of parallel circulation that's left with with the hybrid approach. Dr. Oye, what is, what is, similarly, what has your experience been at Michigan with the difference in the management between the interstage period between the two types of procedures? I think it's been fairly similar in that uh, you just have to accept that there's going to need to be closer surveillance in the kids who go down the hybrid pathway. Um, I think there's also been changes in how we manage interstage uh, standard surgical patients of home monitoring programs and it's uh, perhaps a little bit unknown what factors in an interstage monitoring program whether it's just looking closer uh, having uh, coordinated discharge calls with the pediatrician and the referring cardiologist and the family empowering them to also uh, know um, when there's something wrong and they go to the ER that and that a sat of 70 is normal and they don't they don't get put on 100% oxygen immediately when they arrive <clears throat> I think then there is the scale, uh, watching for growth, the pulse oximeters, watching their oxygen saturations, I think have all been helpful in decreasing mortality. Uh, there's some suggestion that digoxin may be helpful in the interstage period, and at least at our center, we're putting all our kids at, on digoxin as well. Um, so I think uh, I, I would agree that there, there is requirement for closer surveillance in the hybrid. There are more complications. Um, I would also say, though, that it depends on how your center manages the patients overall. Uh, if, like at our center, you only do um, hybrids on the higher risk kids, they are going to have more complications, and uh, it also affects how you manage their next stage as they go forward. So I think at our center, there's a little bit of bias in that the sort of standard risk hypoplast will go down a surgical pathway, whereas uh, we have some significant surf, uh selection bias on the kids that go down the hybrid pathway. And Dr. Oye, while we're, we're on the subject of stage two, I'd like to know, could you just uh, refresh everyone's memory? Uh, if they've gone down the traditional Norwood stage one, what is your timing and what is your preferred method of stage two palliation in that patient? For the standard surgical patients, we uh, do a hemifontan procedure. Uh, between four to six months of age. Uh, and then our third stage is a lateral tunnel Fontan. 
I think we're certainly in the minority of centers that do that. Uh, we choose to do a hemifontan procedure uh, because it allows routine um, uh, enlargement of both the right pulmonary artery and the left pulmonary artery. Um, and then when you go to a lateral tunnel fontan, uh, there's a significant uh, benefit in terms of uh, decreased energy loss compared to um, an extracardiac fontan. Um, and that's irrespective of how much offset or other things you do with the, with the uh, superior vena cava and the conduit. And w there's a lot of this other things to get into with AVMs, etc. cetera. Uh, but in the lateral tunnel, you have um, optimal uh, energetics and you have obligate 50-50 mixing of uh, inferior vena cava blood and superior vena cava blood to the branch pulmonary arteries. Um, so those are the reasons that we do that. With respect to our hybrid approach, um, what we do is uh, almost exclusively taking them to Norwood. Again, our patients are, are the highest risk kids that we see. And we found that if we tried to go to a comprehensive stage two, um, meaning doing basically a Norwood and a stage two operation in one setting, uh, that about 50% of our kids got taken down because uh, they were the kids who were starting with very low birth weight, poor, poor RV function, uh, tricuspid regurgitation, intact septums, etc. Um, so that's been our approach for, for stage two. And Dr. Sharma, in your, your, your experience with uh, the hybrid approach, what, what is your preferred stage two uh, palliation pathway for that? Well, I'll speak to uh, our center philosophy and then more globally in, in centers that apply this uh, approach uh, more widely, not just to high-risk subsets. And I think you know, uh, I think the comprehensive stage two uh, obviously is a much larger operation, but it kicks the can down the road um, to, you know, five, six months of age when the ductal stent is uh, removed, the arch is reconstructed, uh, and the, the conventional Norwood is performed, except you're adding a cable pulmonary connection. Um, I think that the flexibility of the hybrid is that you can, along, along the pathway, uh, you can go many different ways, as Dr. Oye has mentioned. You can actually go straight from a stage uh, a hybrid stage one to a Norwood procedure. Um, some patients in the subgroup that get a comprehensive stage two, uh, for a variety of reasons, their pulmonary vascular bed may not tolerate, uh, despite a catheterization alluding to the fact that they would, they may not tolerate a cable pulmonary. In some of those patients, very rarely, we've added a component called a turbo gland where we've ad actually added pulmonary blood flow from a Blalock Taussig shunt um, to the gland procedure in very rare instances to augment pulmonary blood flow in those circumstances. So some of the, the, the effects and morbidities related to the conventional stage one get transferred to the comprehensive stage two procedure. Uh, we've typically... Uh, uh, manage the patients in, in that sort of algorithm. I, I do believe in places like uh, Gießen, Germany, and here at stateside at um, other institutions that perform this uh, procedure more routinely, you have a wider spectrum of cases, including uh, what we would deem as low-risk patients undergoing uh, stage, stage one. And so those patients tend to uh, do a little bit better, I believe, uh, as they approach comprehensive stage two. Dr. Sharma, what are what are some of the technical uh, challenges faced during a comprehensive stage two with those undergoing the hybrid? 
That's a great question. I, I think some of it has to do with the upfront morbidity of the ductal stenting. Uh, and, and sometimes the ductal stenting may not go uh, ideally, meaning there are multiple stents placed in a telescoping, telescoping manner. Uh, and then the ingrowth of those stents within the aorta can uh, sometimes cause problems in the arch reconstruction, finding spots to actually sew homograft or whatever patch material is being utilized uh, can add some complexity. I think the, the vast majority of uh, surgeons tend to have um, issues with the branch pulmonary arteries. And early on, a lot of those were uh, patch augmented, which added you know, more time to the operation. Um, and with dilations, with static dilations, oftentimes those PAs are very friable and can actually tear and add more operative time. Uh, however, more recently, more and more centers who've, who've done this more routinely are using balloon dilatation intraoperatively to the branch pulmonary arteries, which seem much more satisfactory uh, for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, so some of those are some of the main um, nuances with regards to the comprehensive stage two um, in dealing with them. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Oye, are there any, you know, I think, I think it's kind of clear that both of you are, are, are similarly minded when it comes to who gets a hybrid and who doesn't. Uh, I'm just wondering if you think there's any low risk patients who may benefit from a hybrid procedure in, in your practice. It's not been our practice to do uh, hybrids on standard risk Norwoods. If you look at what's published uh, in the literature from particularly Giesen and Columbus, um, Columbus's most recent, which is still a while ago, publication that looked at a large series were looking at their quote-unquote standard risk uh, hypoplasts going down the hybrid pathway, and their survivals through comp stage two were in the 80s. Um, which is still lower than our all-comers mortality. Um, so we've not been that excited to jump on that bandwagon. I think there are potential other benefits, and I think that centers that do this a lot should continue to push this uh, envelope on whether hybrid is better, um, because if you think about things, again, like neurodevelopmental outcome, it's possible that these kids will do better in the long run. Um, Frankly, if I never have to do another Norwood in my life, I, I, I wouldn't feel sad about it. Um, it's, a, it's a fun operation, but still, if there's a better option, I'm all for it. But I, I think for us, knowing what our survivals are, my own personal survival, uh, last time I looked, was 90% one-year survival. So that's through, obviously, stage one and stage two. Um, so we were a little bit re uh, reticent to, to change what we do at Michigan. Dr. Sharma, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think most North American surgeons, um, you know, uh, because our results in, in traditional stage one surgery are quite good, we've been reticent to, to apply the hybrid approach for standard risk patients. I mean, certainly kids who have prematurity or intracranial hemorrhage or some of the other things that we talked about, I think even if their anatomy was favorable for uh, a Norwood procedure, they could go down the pathway of a of a hybrid approach. I think the real issue is the, the great unknown with regards to the neurodevelopmental um, effects of all this. I mean, there's a, a preponderance of data that shows early on that you know, newborns tend to have a lot more uh, periventricular leukomalacia when they are subjected to cardiopulmonary bypass, both with and without um, 
hypothermic circulatory arrest. In fact, a study, I believe it was uh, quite some time ago from uh, Philadelphia, suggested that about half of the patients who underwent neonatal cardiac surgery compared to about 5% of those beyond 30 days had significant periventricular leukomalacia. Um, there's more recent data in 2019 this year that has uh, is in press that shows that total brain volume and regional brain volumes by MRI uh, at two years, uh, comparing both conventional Norwood and hybrid, that the, the brain volumes are smaller in the Norwood uh, operation group. And so there are some data that is suggestive. However, um, because there's no way to randomize in these patients, it's very difficult to make conclusive statements about that, but there's definitely some data suggestive of it. And so if we can shift this down the road beyond 30 days of life, are these children going to do better from a neurodevelopmental standpoint? I think that remains to be seen. Um, but th that would be one of the main reasons to apply this, this approach uh, in the newborn period. So I, I do think that it's, um, what, it's really what you do best. I don't think that one size fits all. And then sometimes the theoretical and practical advantages are very different. And the downstream effects of neurologic injury are oftentimes difficult to tag to one approach versus another because they're so heterogeneous with regards to patient factors, management issues, as well as both surgeon and bypass management and center management postoperatively. Um, I, I think there's so much variability around the world that it's extraordinarily difficult. So I think it's what you feel comfortable doing and what your team does best, that be that ought to be the, the management strategy that you use. Excellent. Very good. Well, I tell you what, I'll give each of you a chance for final thoughts. Uh, Dr. Oye, you want to go first? Well, I think uh, one of the most important things is not which one is better, um, but that you're honest about your own results, that you have a robust quality and safety effort at your hospital and that you're constantly monitoring your own outcomes. Um, and then the choice of hybrid and Norwood really is what you think is best uh, for uh, getting your patients the best outcome possible. Excellent. Dr. Sharma? I agree with that. That's what I, I mentioned before. I think one size uh, certainly does not fit all. And I do think that in a tool bag of a uh, highly robust and developed congenital heart center, you ought to, ought to have multiple tools in your toolbox to really provide uh, care dedicated to that particular patient. And uh, again, you know, you, your teams need to be, should be facile in both, I believe, in order to, to provide comprehensive care. Very good. Well, I'd like to thank uh, both Dr. Sharma and Dr. Oye once again for joining us today. And we hope you'll join us next time for our next TSRA podcast. Thanks, Derek. Thanks.